the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Heritage Foundation, the center of the conservative universe, helmed by the incredible K. Coles James. If you're not a member... Why not? Go to heritage.org today. Every Friday, he takes the time. He wanders over to our studio, and he gives us an update on all things national security and foreign policy. Vice President of Heritage, he is Jim Carafano. Follow follow him at JJ Carafano on Twitter. James, welcome back to America First. You know, know, I'm a member of the Heritage Foundation. Employees don't have to be. But you are. Yeah. I, I would expect nothing less. But I, 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 I love, so I, I, they give me the money, and then I give it right back. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my paycheck, and then I can give you it back. No, okay, not all of it. Not but, all of it. But some of it. Yeah. That's how dedicated a man he is. He works for the Heritage, and he's also a member at Heritage. Well, you know, 25 years in the, in the U.S. Army, the, the one thing I always thought I would really miss when I left the Army, and you know this because you've worked with so many military people through the years, is just that sense of mission and purpose in life. Yeah. And I, and I get that the Heritage Foundation. Every day I go to work and I say, today we're going to make America free, safe, and prosperous. And, and I sometimes I've actually, having been in the Pentagon, sometimes I <laughs> absolutely feel like I get more things done at Heritage than I did when I was in that building. I'm just saying. Okay, TMI, free, safe, and prosperous. Let's talk about how free, safe, and prosperous is Belarusia right now, Jim. Let's talk about stuff that nobody's talking about, and we should actually spend a little bit of time on what's going on in Europe, on the easterly edges of Europe, Jim. Right, so the the Cold War never ended in the perspective that the entire Soviet sphere of control disappeared because there are nations that in a sense have a relationship with Russia today that almost duplicates the relationship with the Soviet Union and, and, and which they actually call the near abroad. Right. Right. Just to, and Belarus is one of those. And, uh, it's been ruled by Lukashenko for decades has yes. been the country. They have elections, um, for the first time in maybe forever, they actually had real political opposition. And many people think that he actually fraudulently stole, stole, it. stole the election. And so that puts Lukashenko in a tough place because actually Lukashenko the last couple of years has been looking for ways to engage with the West to kind of balance out the relationship with um, Putin and maybe become a little more independent. But um, now he's just scared. <laughs> Uh, and so because of the nascent opposition, right. and so he's turning back to the opposition and looking for support from Russia. And we got to be clear on this: um, the people in the streets of Belarus are are um, fighting for their vote to count. That I don't think that's up for. But having said that, that doesn't mean that they want to join the European Union tomorrow, uh, and they and they and they don't necessarily like the Russians. It's a very pro-Russian country. Their culture is very integrated with Russia. Everybody speaks Russian. So there's, there's, it's not like 
the Ukraine. People should never confuse that what's going on here is what's going on in Ukraine. This is a pro-Russian people. But they want their votes to actually matter. Right. But they want to get rid of Lukashenko. But here's the the one thing Putin will not stand is having a Belarus, which essentially potentially could move out of the Soviet orbit. So so he's nervous. He wants to act. Of course, the Western Europeans are nervous. Um, the most nervous, of course, are Lithuania. The Baltics. Uh, the Baltic states, right? Um, because um, if the Russians moved wholeheartedly into Belarus, essentially the front line would be right up against them. And then there's a very fragile connection between them, Poland, and the rest of Western Europe. So what's happening this weekend you were mentioning? Oh, yeah. So uh, so this is actually like the, the anniversary of the human chain. Uh, and the Lithuanians, in, in, uh, to honor that, are actually doing a human chain. In? Well, from Belarus to Lithuania. But they're also doing a human chain in Washington, D.C., from the Lithuanian embassy to the Belarusian embassy. It's from, I think, noon to two. They're going to social distance. They're going to wear masks. <laughs> but but it's, a, it's a notion of solidarity with the, um, with the Belarusian people. You know, for the U.S. perspective, it's, this is a, I don't want to say that this is a crisis that was made for Donald Trump, but this is a crisis that was made for in Donald Trump. In what way? Well, it requires a prudent course of statementship. That doesn't, on the one hand, say, okay, yeah, we're just going to send divisions, you know, because we're not going to start World War III. On the, on the other hand, we cannot turn our back on what is obviously a, a, fraudulent. a, a fraudulent election. Right. So we have to have a middle ground of, uh, of support for a legitimate process. But the notion that it's not up to us, it's not our job, and, and we're not going to fix Belarus. And I think the message from the United States needs to be, hey, let the people of Belarus figure out the people of Belarus, and everybody should stay out of it, including you, Mr. Putin. And I think a strong message from the U.S. saying we should let the Belarusian people decide and determine their future and figure this out is is the right course of action. It's, and I think that's a that's a policy that's tailor-made for somebody like like Trump, who really does say, what's, what's the American interest? Yes. What's the prudent course? How can we do good in the world? Right. Um, I think we see that fundamentally under all of his decisions. And so... Uh, so we look for here. Great article that my buddy Kyron Skinner and I did uh-huh. um, on the national interest kind of walks through this just came out today on this issue. Yeah. All right. Let's find that, Eric. Let's post that on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. You, you were formed in, you know, the, the belly of the beast that was the Cold War. For those who don't follow these issues in the couple of minutes we have left in, in this segment, compare the Russia of then the 1980s, 1990s, to the Russia of today. How much has it changed? How much hasn't it changed, Jim? Well, the single biggest difference, I think, is the Soviet Union had an, a, a large cadre of captive nations, Yes, which was an endless pool of resources, manpower, and everything else. Right. Uh, you know, so it's like a vampire with its own personal blood bank. Yeah. Russia today doesn't have that. Right. Uh, and, and, and it shows economically. And I think even though Putin, many of Putin's instincts are to replicate traditional Soviet imperial policies, he, he doesn't have the resources uh, to do that. But I think he has the ambition to do that. I think that makes him more dangerous, not less. Jim, big news that really kind of came and disappeared, isn't being focused on the first peace deal for more than 20 years in the Middle East, UAE and Israel. Let's play a little thought experiment. Imagine Joe Biden becomes president. What's his problem going to be with dealing with the Middle East? Well, I think he has two. One, of course, will be, you know, as every administration does, is 
My answer is I will do the opposite of everything the other guy did. <laughs> um, in this case, that would actually be a huge mistake because the reality is, is our foreign policy in the Middle East has actually made very significant progress the last four years. But I think here's the, even if you would change it rhetorically, here, here's the, the problem with trying to stay on the course that we're on. One is, as you know, Israel used to be a very bipartisan issue in the U.S. Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. Yeah, we all totally. supported Israel. Um, it's not that way anymore. It's a very divisive, I think, partisan issue now. And I think it's particularly problematic in in the Democratic Party. Well, when party. you've got leading names who are then, back then, potential candidates for the presidency saying they refuse to go to the AIPAC meeting in D.C., yeah. That means they have a problem in the Democrat Party. Yeah. And, and it actually reflects the American Jewish community, which has actually become, in many ways, a large section of it. As they become more progressive, they become more anti-Israeli. Right. Um, look, Israel is our most important ally in the region. You cannot have a foreign policy in the region by distancing yourself from Israel. And if you don't believe me, talk to Obama, because he proved that over eight years. So that would be a challenge. Um, the other challenge is there is an enormous hatred of you, you, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, you know, and Israel, all the big countries in the region on the left for, for offenses real and imagined. Some of them arguably legitimate. Some of them, you know, if, if they're working with Trump, they're a hateful dictator and we don't like them, right? The, they, not working with those countries would make it impossible to deal with Iran or transnational terrorism issues in the region. So the one challenge that I think the left has in leading on foreign policy in the Middle East is they don't they don't believe in the bilateral relationship with Israel and they don't want to work with all the important allies in the region. So what how do you, what is your policy to the region? And Obama's answer was let's walk away. And and we saw how disastrous right. we are. And uh, look, if, if it wasn't for this president, you know, Iran would be running wild, not just across the region, but, you know, in concert with the Russians and the Chinese. Um, you know, and this president put anything on the line, and this is the thing, I, this is why his policy works. He's done two things. One is, he said, I will, I will be here as a partner for you guys if you guys step up to the plate and carry the load. And um, there are two reasons why they would do that. One is they believe the U.S. will stick around, and the other is that the U.S. has demonstrated that it's willing to push back on the Iranians. And this guy has gone to the mat, including this really important step of preventing the arms embargo from being lifted on Iran by by uh, calling it, by declaring the snapback of the UN sanctions. Right. Very brave, very it's, courageous. It's very not. Tough it's not just that. It's everything else. It's the UAE deal. It's it's also the Soleimani operation. Huge, huge you know, d- diplomacy and force together, and it's working. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Hugh Hewitt for townhall.com. I'll admit it. I was a skeptic on the prospects for a virtual Republican convention. I have attended conventions since 2000, and I've always thought the Democrats brought better production value to the quadrennial pageants than the GOP did. I expected a creaky, clunky series of wooden speeches. Was I ever wrong? 
The Republican National Convention was a masterpiece of messaging. We saw a look at an impressive record of the president. We saw the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speaking from Jerusalem. We saw the diversity of today's GOP. We saw Vice President Pence making the stakes clear when he said, In this election, it's not so much whether America will be more conservative or more liberal, more Republican or more Democrat. The choice in this election is whether America remains America. And, of course, we saw the president. Hats off to the president, RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel, and all behind the virtual convention. I trust and hope American voters were watching and listening. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.